Hi, this is Andrew Miller from Business Enjoyment, and this is another episode of The Tingle Zone. In this episode, I'm talking with Joseph Gastel, CEO of Get Some Class, which provides remote team-building events for lawyers and introduces fun and laughter into a high-pressured and intense environment. Joseph started off as a lawyer himself and got to a point where he realised that he'd been forced down a route he didn't really want to go down and wasn't enjoying himself. The enforced lockdown caused by the pandemic opened up an opportunity for Joseph to step into and what started as an experiment in his own firm has now flourished into an international business. This is one of those great conversations where, in addition to his story and reflections on business, Joseph and I get into some very deep and philosophical concepts, including topics such as how do you collaborate with others without risking your own identity, the importance of getting comfortable with uncertainty, and how tragedy is the underlying theme of the human condition and what to do about it. We also explore the questions, who are we really? And what is our place in a civilised society? Before we jump into the interview, if not already done so, please have a listen of my TEDx talk. If you go to my website, businessenjoyment.com, a pop-up will appear giving you direct access. Alternatively, take a look at my LinkedIn profile and you'll find a link there, either in my profile or in the featured section. This talk sets out my ethos that life and business is about so much more than just money and sets out how you can be successful and happy at the same time. So do check that out, but for now, sit back, relax, take a moment to reflect on who you really are, and most of all, enjoy. Yeah, I'm Joseph Christel. Uh, I am in the process of figuring out who I am. You know, it's a lifelong journey, so not entirely clear, but I go by the name Joseph Christel. Um, I uh, run Get Some Class. I have a primary project and a secondary project. My primary project uh, is Get Some Class. Uh, Get Some Class provides uh, fun events and team building uh, for remote and virtual companies, but increasingly for law firms, uh, where we provide both fun team building type events uh, with the goal of making the environments more playful, a bit lighter, uh, you know, a bit more laughter, introducing a bit more laughter into sometimes what is kind of a very high pressured, uh, tense environment. And also, uh, we're rolling out a new line of EQ, emotional intelligence oriented programming, uh, you know, social intelligence, uh, you know, self-awareness in the workplace, uh, programming to enhance the uh, interpersonal dynamics inside of law firms and the legal industry in general. So, you know, just a quick comment on that and then I'll pause. Basically, uh, you know, many, much of the corporate world has kind of uh, clued on to the fact that there's a lot of, you know, soft learning that can enhance the workplace and make it, you know, wiser, better environment. You know, Google, for example, has been a, a leader in this and they've rolled out a number of programs uh, of this sort that really empower their people to kind of take responsibility, uh, to have more self-awareness, to move over into positions and work that fits them better. And that's redounded to the benefit of Google and companies like that in many, many ways. And so my feeling is that the legal industry can use a lot of learning and, and improvement in this area. So that's increasingly a major focus of Get Some Class. Um, uh, that's, yeah, that's the primary project. Uh, I can tell you about the secondary project. I'll pause. You tell me where you want to go. Yeah, well, I did the, the, the secondary stuff, the EQ stuff, yeah. That's, no, that's the, that's, the, the that's kind a of a newer focus of, of the prime of Get Some Class and... You know, one interesting thing to just raise right out of the gate here is that given it's kind of a newer focus, uh, 
actually an open question for us is, does the brand and brand name, you know, is it still appropriate? You know, the get some class was kind of when most of our focus was on fun. Uh, and so it has this kind of irreverent, you know, classy uh, vibe to it, a bit slightly in your face, but hopefully, you know, people take it in a playful way. Uh, and and now that we're kind of increasingly building this more weighty uh, series of programming that's intended to be heartfelt, sincere, uh, reflective, um, uh, interpersonal in a kind of more serious way, um, uh, albeit, you know, we're trying to do it with our fun, playful side, we have this open question now, you know, what do we do with this brand name? Do we kind of create sister brands? Do we try to, you know, rebrand and change the name to kind of uh, hold both? Uh, do we create different websites, stay on the same website, uh, you know, have a website that bifurcates the flows? And, and this is kind of an integral problem and question, you know, that I'm working through and thinking about why. So no solution, no answer. This is kind of the mess itself. <laughs> well, let's 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 see because um, it's it's wrapped around you. So you're you're a lawyer by background, is that? I am a lawyer by trade. Yeah, um, I went. So tell, tell us tell us your journey through that and how you how get some class came about as a consequence. Yeah, sure. So uh, I went to college late. I went to college at like 22. Uh, I, I went. I grew up in a very you know insular Orthodox Jewish setting, very traditional and. Uh, I went to a high school where you kind of studied Torah all day, and then from five to seven, we had secular study, you know, not very much to write home about, uh, uh, you know, no calculus, no physics, chemistry, biology, or any of that, uh, computer science, you know, forget about. Um, uh, not enough coursework for a diploma, and it was kind of the norm that people would just continue that for a while after high school. I still think that I'm the only person in my high school class that ever went to college, period. Uh, and I went at like 22, 23, you know, going off at night to take some courses. Um, that, that, that gap was there for you to get up to the level required for the college to be able to go to college kind of stuff. Learning all no, the that gap was there because uh, people continued to do Torah study for many years after, uh, you know, and that was kind of a norm. Uh, and so it was like, hey, you should be doing this. This is the most important thing you can do. Right. And like, who am I? I don't know. So, you know, I said in the beginning, I'm still discovering who I am. And that's you know, true because all human beings should, and many of us kind of stop that journey, but mm -hmm. it's particularly true in my case because, uh, you know, this process of individuation of like, who am I, what do I really want, as opposed to what is the, you know, my society very strongly telling me that I should want and do, was actually a process of very, very, um, you know, uh, difficult evolution. It's like, actually, I don't like this. I don't enjoy this thing that I've been told for so long that I should be doing, right? And um, uh, it, that took a lot of psychological individuation and courage to say, not only, you know, this is, I don't find this talks to me. It's not something that I enjoy uh, doing and owning that in a way that was kind of guilt-free and saying, mm -hmm. actually, I don't want to be doing this at all. Uh, took a lot of development and time. Uh, and how, how did your society react when you said I'm off? Well, I'm not exactly off in this kind of. Well, the, but it moved like, to college and doing not going against the norm. So, so you know, it's it's uh, it's uh, it, there. Are, I, I had shifted over in terms of the population that I was generally uh, amongst, and the people that I kind of normed over to going to college for some vocational purpose was no longer, you know, kind of like it wasn't like radical. Um, mm -hmm. 
so you know there's kind of like some social movement going on in facilitation of this uh, individuation process. And then I, I didn't go to kind of an Ivy League school, which would have been out of the norm. I went to Turo College, which is a Jewish sponsored college catering to people from my background. So, you know, the step was small um, right. relative, uh, you know, the, it was incremental. Um, uh, but, you know, even there, a lot of people were, I would say, uh, some people are there, you know, legitimately because they're academically curious and some people, they just want a profession, right? As opposed to kind of, let me, you know, engage with a full spectrum of liberal arts uh, and, you know, just study uh, Greek philosophy in, in the original uh, because it's, uh, you know, something interesting to do and think about. Uh, and, you know, there's a range, you know, I don't want to kind of, there are people who are legitimately curious and some very bright, capable people there. I have lots of friends and I learned a lot. Um, uh, but this kind of awakening, uh, awakening to the fact that like, hey, I really want to understand the world through many lenses, through many layers, through many disciplines, and really learn as much as I can uh, was, you know, a process for me. Uh, why why and, do you think you're the sort of person that goes against, went against society? I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are other people that want, that, that, that thought that, that I want to see the world through different lenses, but I'm yeah. guessing that you're, you said you had a lot of challenges, so I'm guessing you're, there's not many. So why do you think you are someone that's, a, why want to look at a broader picture than this and what's in front yeah, of Yeah, you know, uh, those are the kinds of questions that people often give, you know, pat answers to, but are, um, you know, profoundly difficult questions, I think, to really answer is the answer they're genetics. The they're the fun ones, aren't they? Yeah, no, they're the fun <laughs> ones. And believe me, you know, it's something I've thought about, you know, the, the uh, uh, why am I pushed to individuate uh, in a way that, you know, many other people uh, from my peer group weren't? Um, uh, is it a factor of intelligence? Uh, there are other smart people, you know, that were there. Um, is it a factor of... Um, uh, you know, bad environment and kind of reaction to, you know, emotional side or people that were not, you know, very, uh, to having, you know, you know, were emotionally neglectful. And, you know, so therefore there's kind of like a emotional dissonance that therefore encourages, like makes the space maybe not feel so at home. And therefore there's kind of a push to break from it that, you know, together with the intelligence and curiosity pushes it out. Is it some is it genetic inclination, you know, to kind of individuate? Is it a birth order thing? Um, uh, I don't know, you know, my older brother is kind of, you know, uh, also uh, a bit out there. Um, it's probably a mixture, but I, I definitely have this kind of strong, um, uh, I've always had this strong sense of like, uh, what, what are you guys doing? Does that make sense? You know, this kind of push to kind of challenge things or push against things. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I still have that, um, in, in many ways. And, uh, I guess I've learned, evolved over time to use it and refine it. Mm. Um, uh, you know, sometimes it could be actually, it could be an attitude that's, uh, it, it could, it could not be, uh, it could, it doesn't, it's sometimes it's great because it's like, Hey, let me look at this in a different lens lens and see things differently. But sometimes it's, it's, sometimes it's kind of arrogant, you know, it's like, actually there are people here that I can learn from that have been doing this for a while and maybe I don't know better and I need to kind of learn to take a deep breath and honor, you know, their experience, honor their knowledge in a way that um, uh, sometimes that kind of push to be different doesn't serve well. So, you know, it's a, it's something it's, to balance it's, as well. It's very common that the, the, the thing that's a really big strength in each of us also holds us back in another way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
get this uh, sort of uh, yin yang situation. Yeah, hundred percent. And so I'm trying to learn to shut up and listen more in a kind of sincere, <laughs> in a way that's sincere and humble. Yeah. But um, you know, there, there's some interesting edges there because like some part of me uh, finds it to be threatening. Uh, you know, if I'm not the most knowledgeable guy in the room, right? Or somebody's doing something and succeeding more than me, and it's like. Um, you know, oh no, you know, what about me? Uh, and, and so it's hard when you react to the world from a perspective of threat and scarcity, it's actually hard to be gracious and to celebrate other people's wins and enjoyment. But from a, you know, logical, like uh, uh, from a hedonistic perspective, but not maybe a, uh, a, a, what is uh, Aristotle, you know, his word for the, uh, the optimal, um, you know, state of enjoyment is maybe is eudaimonia, I think. So maybe from a eudaimonistic perspective, because hedonism has a kind of you know, superficial pleasure to it, you live in a much richer world when not only can you celebrate your own joys, but you can engage in sympathetic joy and resonance with other people's successes and joys and not see them as kind of, you know, a threat to you because there's many ways to succeed in the world. And so intellectually, I'm very, very cognizant of that, while at the same time, limbically, you know, emotionally, there's this kind of reactive habit to the world. But, uh, you know, for me, it's a problem-solving challenge. How do I take this system, tweak it, shift it, engage with it, you know, be gentle with it, and teach it to really, really... Uh, you know, meet the world in a clean way and celebrate other people's joy, resonate with their success and not see it as kind of diminishing me in any way. So, um, you know, that's a major project um, on the personal side. And it ties back, you know, to the business side, because it's when you meet somebody, are they a collaborator or are they, are they a friend? Can I build something with them or are they a threat? Uh, and many people, it's, you can initially see as potentially a threat, but if you approach it with kind of a, a, a nuanced, you know, skillful, uh, uh, friendly lens, you can do great things together by being more open. And so I, uh, you know, the brain I have is one way, but there's a, you know, it's also aware that it can shift in a way that serves myself and my projects and the world in a way that's much more fruitful mm -hmm. and joyful and just pleasant all around. So I'm kind of like, you know, coaching this like young uh, younger self part to say, hey, you know, there might be a reason why you see the world that way or habits you've developed, but come, I'm going to hold your hand and we're going to walk over to a place and way of living that is just much richer for me and for the people around me. So, uh, you know, how do I navigate that path and those gates? Mm, beautiful. And, 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 and as you said right at the start, you know, finding who am I and it's something we should all do and understand that. And that, that's, understanding that younger version of ourselves and taking them by the hand and taking for the walk you know that it, it is part of the journey and it's so rewarding when you can do that yeah. and 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 not be scared of it you know and and to actually as i say enjoy the journey so to speak it, it's part of that process and actually it's a it's a fun thing to do it can be yeah and create uh, bring up some you know traumatic uh, elements and emotion and that kind of stuff but yeah there's an enjoyment to it <laughs> yeah. And those are integral. You know, if you have something that is just has high charge uh, to it, emotional charge, you know, or you know, traumatic or other, um, you know, really powerful states, those things hold you back. Um, you know, they stop you from embracing the full expression that you're capable of doing. And, you know, as much as they are difficult and we have this very, very strong impulse to avoid them, the only way really to full flourishing is towards. Um, and 
you have to teach your mind to say, whoa, you know, I'm with a relative and this relative triggers me profoundly or some other state that that state when it arises is your friend because if you don't befriend it, it will hold you, it will continue to exercise profound power over you. Uh, and befriending it as a process and takes skill and cultivation and wisdom, but it's like not you, the, the mind has to learn to say, I love this. I want to be here and I want to cherish this because it needs to be held. It needs to be understood. It needs to be processed. And so I need to love to be here with what is, uh, even when it's chaotic, because otherwise it will hold me. Um, mm. and, and it can't be instrumental. It could be, you know, something I saw recently that's good is, uh, you know, let's say if you have meditation practice, you know, the goal is to let go of expectations, right? But aren't you doing it because you kind of have an expectation? There is kind of a goal there, right? So uh, it's a paradox. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's the same thing here. Uh, you are doing it because you want something, right? But if you want to get there to that something you want, you have to let go of that want in the process itself. And so there is kind of a goal, but there is also a way for the mind in its present state to let go of its you know, future orientation and just be present oriented. And it's the same thing with working um, you know, with a, 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 you know, a powerful emotional state. Um, uh, it's you need to be now oriented and not like, how can I get rid of this or get through or make it go away, but more like, how can I love and only want to be here with this? Mm. Uh, and when you can do that, that expands over time your capacity to really engage in the fullness of the human experience and all its chaos. You know, uh, John Kabat-Zinn, who's, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's a very well-known mindfulness teacher. And I sat, you know, meditation retreats with him. He calls it the full catastrophe. Um, so, you know, the more you can embrace the full catastrophe of life, the more of a full life you can you can live so yeah i'll, I'll just pause there <laughs> yeah my, 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 my phrase like is being comfortable in chaos uh, yeah that's great that's a great that's, phrase that's where you need to be because we, we're so attached to having everything in order and red working for us and all that kind of thing but that's all about taking control and and life is isn't controllable <laughs> yeah exactly exactly uh you know surrendering to that reality and and it's just to give it honor you know there is a reason we want life to be controllable, right? Mm. And it's a profoundly human and worthy reason. It's because we want to have predictability over lives and know that we're not going to get blown up or our kid's not going to get shot in school, you know, or some other, or get sick or, you know, have some congenital, you know, a gen a genetic disease that comes out. And those are profoundly human, amazing, wondrous, you know, wishes. The world should be that way, right? It's just not, you know, uh, you know, if we, we, can get God, pockets of, we can get pockets of it and let's work yeah, with the pockets that but, we've got for sure. But there's bits that aren't and that's where we get scared. But that's where we need to be. Yeah. And, and you can't know that that bit is not happening, you know, uh, tomorrow or the next moment. There is no certainty. And that is you know, just the profound truth. And much of human existence is struggling with the attempt to impose certainty and something that is inherently uncertain, you know, and this manifests in so many ways, you know, in our individual lives and in our families and our social structures and our communities, it manifests in global politics, you know, and, and movements and so on, because they're all attempts to try to, you know, impose a utopia or something akin to that on a world that is inherently not, uh, you know, susceptible to some to kind of determinism and control. And um, we struggle with it because 
a, a, a better world would be a predictable one, you know, um, uh, at least more predictable where, you know, we, there are the, yeah. Well, would it be a better world or would it be more boring? <laughs> you know what? I, so I, I think that's something that people use as kind of an answer or a justification. There, to some extent, it may be more boring. At the same time, uh, you know, just honoring the human experience and the fullness of tragedy and unpredictability fully, it's not a good, good answer or it's not a good full answer. And the reason it's not a full answer is because if you're the person in Ukraine whose family got entirely killed and blown up, it doesn't answer you, you know? Oh, so I need to lose my kids and wife and whatever it is. So the world shouldn't be more boring. Fuck that, you know? Um, it, it's like, it's a nice, it has a veneer of an answer and it does, you know, enrich the world and our own struggle, you know, no doubt about that, but it's not a good, good answer. And that's the reason it's not a good answer is because, you know, maybe it makes sense for the person who's kind of had some struggle, but otherwise, you know, has their needs and then evolves to a place where it's settled. But there are many people, if you honor history and the human experience, you know, as it deserves to be honored, it's a, you know, it's a sucky answer and it doesn't explain, you know, uh, too much of the, you know, the, the real tragedy in human nature. So mm. uh, uh, yeah, sorry to, you know, to take it, you know, bull by the horns there, but I feel like that needs to be said and, you know, cheap answers, um, there, there's some truth to it, but being, it, it, it's something that I think needs to be honored deeply before we attempt a kind of answer. Uh, and ultimately I think there is no answer. You know, I just think it's a tragedy. Um, and, and all we can do is embrace the chaos of human existence, surrender to that reality so that we can live our lives with as much beauty as we can moment to moment. Uh, um, I, I can pause, but there's something I saw recently that's very powerful in this regard I'd, I'd like to share, you know. Uh, no, yeah, so basically, you know, I saw that it was this unbelievably powerful article um, in the Boston Globe, I think. It was by a couple uh, that learned that their child, uh, their, their two-year-old had Tay-Sachs. Um, uh, Tay-Sachs is a genetic condition. Uh, I think it generally afflicts, you know, Ashkenazi Jews uh, almost predominantly, maybe entirely. Um, uh, you know, there are kind of these interesting mutations in the Ashkenazi Jewish population uh, that are pretty unique to it. And there are other populations that have, you know, that, that has happens in different populations, but it's common in populations that had, you know, genetic bottlenecks or, you know, were smaller at one point in time and then grew, uh, you know, so it's actually common when I dated, you know, I, I did genetic testing for a bunch of these before my wife and I got engaged to make sure, you know, that we're not carriers and that is kind of the norm and, uh, but, and they got tested this couple and one tested positive, one tested negative, but you need both to be carriers. Um, but turns out the, negative test was wrong and they had a baby and they figured out you know a two years old the baby has Tay-Sachs and there is no cure and uh pretty much it was clear that the baby would live another uh, the, the child would live another year or two and then die um and you know that's a profound tragedy there's no real uh no real solace or you know explanation uh that can really do justice to people who are you know with such an amount of loss and uh, but what they, the way they reacted was um, the mother uh, decided that, you know, they're going to, instead of living with the awkwardness and difficulty and, you know, people don't know what to say and relatives and so on, they're actually going to embrace it and celebrate, you know, every Saturday, every Shabbat as if it was uh, her birthday. And, you know, they would invite relatives and travel to different, you know, relatives, in different locations and make, you know, balloons and a celebration every single week 
so that, you know, they really, really lived every moment of her life mm. to the utmost, you know, poignancy and joy and, uh, you know, rejoicing and celebration. Um, and, you know, that's, I think, the, the ultimately the, the response, uh, you know, that, that is the ideal response to the nature of the uncertainty of the human condition. It's that every moment of what you have is something poignant and worthy of, uh, you know, of celebration. And how can we teach ourselves to really lead a life that is completely uh, continuous celebratory moments? And, you know, it's a skill and an art. I'm far from there. But yeah. that's my goal is to kind of get to a state where I live with, you know, personally and with, a, you know, my family and, you know, whoever else I interact with, with this continuous poignant uh, celebration of what we're doing, just like as if, you know, my daughter were to be dying, you know, God forbid, in a year from now, because who knows what's happening? And mm. Why do we need that kind of death or horrible moment in order to say, let's live this life with the most poignancy we can? We're all going to die. It's happening. And, you know, you don't know when. Yeah. And I think that's the thing is why why these things are so difficult, because we've got a, a general nature and a, a general point of view and a specific point of view. So in a very simple terms, in a, in a general point of view, we're all going to die. Exactly. You say there's no getting around that one on a specific yeah. point of view. Each one of those deaths is somewhere along the line of tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> so you're always going to get conflict between whatever point of view is, because as soon as you move it to a different perspective, it changes impact and you yeah. can always bring it down to a tragedy. You can always bring it out into uh, uh, something that's not. But um, yeah, I think there is tragedy. I think the underlying, you know, there's an underlying theme of the human condition that is tragic. Um, uh, and as much as we would like to resolve that and deny that and make a world that where that's not true, it is true. Yes. And the response to it has to be one that says, that embraces the fullness of the uncertainty and therefore embraces the fullness of the precariousness of now with the poignancy with which they celebrated every one of her Saturdays. Mm, beautiful. So college. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, went off track, but it's fine. It was great. It's good. It's good. Um, yeah. So, bring us back to you. Yeah. Was there something more important to talk about than that? Uh, you know, <laughs> of human life. <laughs> we could just stop there. <laughs> yeah. Back to the mundane, right? But the whole point here, the whole point here, is to turn the mundane into the holy, right? To turn every moment of the mundane into the ultimate moment, the ultimate celebration. So college, yeah. So I, I majored in psych, um, you know, I was kind of interested in, in uh, human mind and behavior and, you know, my own inter internal experience, which ironically, you know, psych majoring in psych is much more about, you know, is less, it's not an introspective thing. You do get some understanding of human behavior, but it's not actually right. introspectively oriented. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, then I, I actually thought maybe I'll become a psychologist. Um, uh, I didn't really know or have a good sense of, you know, what I wanted to do or what I enjoyed. And uh, I'm still building that awareness. Um, uh, and we should circle back because there's, there's different elements to that. There's the capacity for enjoyment uh, internally. And then there's also whether it's a good fit with your external circumstances. Uh, but I, you know, so I tried to get into psych research programs like social psychology, PhDs, and 
you know, I probably didn't go about it in a smart way. I didn't have like, you know, elite credentials and the small programs one-on-one, either they, each professor takes a take on one, takes one student a year. Uh, so I didn't get in anywhere. Um, and, uh, but I was already like 26, 27, and I kind of needed a career and didn't know what to do. Uh, you know, so law school is always there and available and it's a track and I had lots of other people that went there. So I took the LSAT, um, you know, I did very well and I applied to schools, a number of, you know, great schools. And, uh, and then, you know, I got into Harvard and Columbia and NYU. And of course, Yale doesn't know how to tell quality. So they turned me down. But um, not the, uh, not the bitter about that at all. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Um, no complex. Um, anyway, but uh, uh, look at me whining about this. You know, how many people would, would want love to be in the position that I was? Um, so I went to Harvard for law school. Uh, and, you know, that was the first time I was in, you know, kind of a really robust intellectual environment. Uh, first time I was actually in like a, a, a real co-ed school even. Um, uh, and uh, it was just amazing to be in an environment with so many bright, thoughtful um, people. Were you, were, you feeling, were you feeling threatened from your previous comment about? Yeah, of course. You know, I was always self-conscious, like, uh, you know, uh, am I smart? Am I capable? Are these people smarter than me? And so on. Um, uh, and, you know, working through that, uh, you know, is still for something, it's still a process of getting comfortable in myself, finding my worth in my own, you know, personhood as opposed to who I am or what I can do. Um, uh, but at the same time, you know, it was still very, very rich. Uh, it was just awesome people, great conversations. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, so many opportunities, there's so many incredible people that visit the campus on an almost daily basis, you know, Supreme Court justices and Congress people and senators and, you know, or, uh, um, uh, you know, former presidents or, or, you know, dignitaries from around the world and, uh, you know, business leaders, hedge fund moguls, billionaires, um, uh, and it's just a really uh, very, very academically and research-rich environment, which was really cool. I took classes in the undergrad. Um, uh, I took classes in the business school and just a really, really awesome place to be. But you know what most people who go to law school end up doing? Cool. Ah, it's a trick question. They oh, end up practicing law. No, practicing law. Yeah, it was a real, just a simple question, Andrew. Um, uh, they end up going to law firms. They become lawyers. And guess what? Uh, I, yeah, what? Because there's a standard thing in this country that whatever you study at university, you don't go on and do. <laughs> yeah, so law school is graduate school here, you know, so okay. it's probably right. It's a yeah, secondary yeah. degree. And so that's it's very vocationally. Or you kind of decided by that point. Yeah. So and it's also, you know, just to say it, it's like um, I don't know if you uh, you're familiar, but uh, in the elite law schools, all the major law firms come down in this one week of, uh, you know, uh, concentrated screening interviews. And it's literally like out of a documentary uh, or a movie. They rent this hotel. In, uh, in Cambridge, you know, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, not Cambridge, you know, Cambridge. Um, uh, and they're called the Charles Hotel. And they literally like rent out all the floors. Each firm, you know, gets a couple of rooms and the interviews take place in the bedrooms, right? <laughs> like they push the beds to the sides and they have, you know, sit by a little coffee table. And um, the interviews are 20 minutes at a time. And you kind of basically just, you know, pick whatever firms you want to interview at and, you know, you 
pretty much get like most of the top 15, 20 choices of yours, um, you know, in, 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 uh, in an elite law school like Harvard or, you know, Columbia or Yale or, any, or those schools, you know, the, the, the students have much more power. And um, then you go up to the floor at the time of the interview and uh, it, the hallway is filled with students standing by each room in the hotel. And on the 20 minutes, 11 o'clock, 11.20, 11.40, 12 o'clock, people like look at their watch and look up and down the hall. And then you, the ritual is you knock on the door to signal that it's time for the next wow. uh, interviewing. Okay, so you kind of knock on the door, they finish up inside, you know, the person says, thank you, goodbye. They interview you, walks out, you walk in. And you do like 20, some people do 30, whatever of, of those. Um, the, the original speed dating, basically. Yeah, <laughs> over the course of a week. And then they basically, you know, within a day, they tell you, do they want to interview you more seriously? A callback interview is called, you go to the firm in New York or wherever you're going um, and you meet, you have four half hour interviews and then they tell you if they're going to make you an offer or not to come for a summer job. And a summer job is basically a shoe in uh, for a permanent job. Uh, you know, so... I did that. I got a job, um, a summer job. I went to a firm called Dave's Polk. You know, it's, it's a you know, great firm, uh, top firm in the U.S. And I ended up going to the tax department when I graduated law school and I started practicing as a lawyer. Um, and I kind of realized that, like, it's not the best fit for me. You know, uh, I'm a bit of a jumpy guy, like, uh, hey, why are we doing it this way? Let's do it this way. Let's try this. Let's try this. And, you know, you're perfect. You're what in most elite law firms what's valuable is for you to do the work and become a deep subject matter expert and stay in your lane in that kind of very focused way because um, in principle if you're in the right space i would have thought that that skill of challenging and looking things differently would fit in beautifully with a law and b tax within the subject matter yes because exactly what's what you want to do is to say yeah within the subject matter you know innovation and thoughtfulness and creativity and so on but like after deep mastery and very very yeah, narrow right? on, in the yeah. sense that like you know process innovation or figuring out how to do things differently or you know create some new uh, technology or whatever it is you know that kind of stuff is not really, uh, you know, valued or valuable to the model so much. Um, also, it was like, hey, why am I consulting on the tax, you know, implications of this merger and acquisition or this private equity transaction or, you know, uh, this, uh, you know, bond or stock issuance or whatever it is? Why am I not like doing this transaction? The guy at the bank or the guy in the other company, whatever, is he or she more really more capable than me? Like, you know, why don't I have skin in the game? What's going on? What's going on? So if you have that itch and it's, you know, really pulls you, it's hard to sit just kind of as a service professional transactionally, you know, you know, just papering things. Um, and I think if you're asking too many of those questions, you probably don't belong in the seat that you're in. So I kind of had that recognition. And then I was like, okay, well, this is my first job. I've never worked another job and I have two kids. So what do I do now? Um, uh, so not so easy. Um, and uh, eventually the pandemic came along and, you know, chaos, talk about chaos from another angle. Chaos is a ladder, as Littlefinger says in Lord of the Rings. Um, uh, with, in my case, I try to say it a bit less manipulatively. Um, have you watched, Lord, uh, not Lord of the Rings, no, sorry, so. Game of Thrones. Game of Game Thrones. Thrones. Game of yes, Thrones. Game of Thrones. Um, I'm a big Lord of the Rings guy, but this is from Game of Thrones. Um, uh, the, and uh, I, I started thinking about virtual programming once or another, landed on virtual corporate events. I spoke to the events director at my firm, you know, got some intel on the 
on uh, on the space. And then I just proposed a chess event with a you know US chess champion. They're like, oh, that sounds cool. Why don't you do a demo? And and so I put it together. We had a strategy talk. So, you're, in. so it's just, you're still working with for the law firm? Yeah, and I'm still working. And this is kind of like surreptitiously, you know, on the yeah. side because uh, I'm you know working now out of my bedroom, right? So I don't I can do things that I wouldn't otherwise have felt comfortable with, you know, when I was, you know, sitting next to other people in the offices. And um, uh, uh, so, so I did a demo for them and we created a package, a chess set, chess snacks, chess cookies, chess chocolates, you know, we made it themed um, and cute and they liked it. So I invited other events people, other law firms uh, also, you know, under, you know, not really uh, uh, saying, oh, by the way, I work at a peer law firm, and they came, and, you know, they enjoyed, this is all virtual, they enjoyed it, and then two weeks later, you know, some elite law firm in the U.S. asked me if they can book the event, so I had a sale, um, uh, and then, you know, so I generated a few. Talk us through what that event was, you sort of had chess and getting chess champions in, and so how, how... Oh, yeah, so what that event was and is, and, you know, we still have a number of different interesting chess programs that we do, uh, we got started there. Uh, basically, uh, we have uh, yeah, I have one of the best chess players in the world come and uh, he gives a uh, strategy talk, um, you know, pretty accessible, you know, to different people at different uh, levels. He'll give a refresher tutorial if people need that on the pieces. And he'll usually break down like the last game from the Queen's Gambit as, you know, for, for some novelty uh, to, for purposes of the strategy talk. And then we'll have like gameplay on, on Zoom using like chess.com or a chess platform. Uh, tournament structure usually just for playfulness and the grandmaster will give commentary or even play in the tournament or play the winner. Uh, <laughs> and then each person will get a package. They'll get a chess set and chess snacks, uh, chessmen cookies from Pepperidge Farms a company in the US that just happens to make these chessmen cookies. Uh, and then chess chocolates that I have a chocolatier make for me and uh, you know, black and white candies and a nice little package with a welcome card. Uh, so, you know, it's many touch points and just a rich experience with a really, you know, master of the area. Um, and then we'll get on Zoom and do that program. Uh, uh, and then we have like three, four variations of that particular program at this point. One is a program focused on women in chess with a, uh, a big evangelist for the participation of women in chess, Jen Shahadi. She's an author. She's written a book on women in chess. Um, she does a lot of work with, uh, you know, to help girls have access to it and, uh, we have one that's chess and business strategy. I call from the board to the boardroom lessons from the chess board, you know, uh, for business strategy. Uh, we have one focused on the chess of the Queen's Gambit, and we have an option to add this Gibson Martini, which is, I don't know if you watched the, Gibson, the, the chess Gambit, the Queen's Gambit, but the Gibson Martini is a drink that Beth Harmon drinks a few times in the series. Um, and so, you know, we have option to add that. So, that's kind of like a variety of different chess programming that we have uh, as part of a larger portfolio of 30, 40 different offerings. Uh, um, but yeah, that's the kind of how I got started. Mm, and, and in that first one, was, was the firm paying for those extra little things or were you bring out of your own pocket and then hoping it gets reimbursed when you got a sale or? Yeah, uh, well, the demo, I foot, footed the bill for uh, you know, the little packages. Um, and I'm sure it's got more, in, in, uh, it's got bigger since you first started, but it was still going to be a cost, isn't it? But, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was some cost, you know, a few hundred bucks or something. Uh, I footed the bill for that. And then once they, I had a sale, you know, the firm paid for the program and for each person to get a package. And that's each individual firm 
the buys yeah. from you. So yeah, that- it is, the programs are done. They're they're purchased by one purchaser on behalf of a group yeah. or a company or get, department. And they decide how many people are coming. We've got 20 guys. Correct. So- yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we'll send, uh, and then they'll give me a list of addresses and emails and contact information when there's a program with a package. You know, it depends on the program. Some have, some don't. And we'll send it to each person, you know, uh, uh, ship it out and i've actually I, i've 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 hit a person in england once i had to get something to somebody in england uh uh this firm came to me with two weeks notice um they wanted to do a program uh they ended up wanting shipping to 100 people uh you know it was a charcuterie assembly and uh uh so i sent you know four kinds of meat and a wooden board and three kinds of cheeses and dried fruit and you know mustard and pickles and nuts and the whole nine yards plus craft beer um and uh i brought on a chef to you know lead the assembly and then on a free and then i brought on a freestyle rapper to, to do improvised interactive rap um uh and we turned around 100 packages like that uh within two weeks shipped them all out and i had to get one to a person in england so there i actually coordinated with somebody local you know a local vendor in england to get them something but we hit it all we turned it around and we did it beautiful and and presumably there was a point where you said right this is working leave the law firm focus purely on this yeah uh i had you know after i got a number of sales i landed programs the the women and chess program for the boston consulting group and oliver wyman in march of last year and at that point i said you know i'm just going to figure out a way to make this work um uh so i told you know uh, my department i'm leaving in a few weeks um i uh and then i left i emailed the whole firm you know with my little uh, departure email and I attached the custom sand art video uh, that I had a sand artist make for me showing me you know leaving law school and going to this great firm and then waving goodbye and saying thank you um, uh, it was memorable I will tell you that <laughs> so again I'm looking at the parallels between right back at the beginning of your story and leaving a structured society to move out to do your own thing and yeah. then here to move out to do your own thing were, were, were there similar like patterns right oh, yeah. <laughs> who doesn't um were there similarities in terms of the challenges that are going on inside of yourself and or was it a much easier decision now because it's like yeah this is what i want to do guys yeah you know i think it's like learning to be autonomously driven to be self-driven and self-directed uh is something that i think all human beings struggle with and being within a framework is often reassuring because you know what the next step is. There's some direction, there's some support, there's some, you know, career arrows, even if some of it is ambiguous, but there are steps you take along the way. Um, uh, I think many people end up staying in structures like that, that keep them moving along because it provides security and uh, you don't have to make as many difficult decisions and you know be entirely self-motivated and find the source of direction within yourself um back to the control thing from before you know yeah controllable a bit more gives you some sense of Mm. more certainty and more security and more structure and uh you know i think i personally had to you know move over to a place where i can start building the scaffolding to really be self-directed, self-driven and find my own place of stability, which I'm still doing, you know, it's a fledgling, it's still a young business. And, Mm. uh, you know, I'm still in a, like I said, in a phase that there's still plenty of fear, um, you know, as to where I'm going and what I'm doing. But um, 
uh, it really, I'm in a place where I'm really forced to face that, think about it, you know, really deal with the question of who am I in the sense of what am I doing? Am I doing it out of fear, uh, being fear driven or am I doing it because I'm really doing what I want to do and I'm staying with my heart and, you know, doing what's kind of most important to me. And part of the reason, you know, like I said, we have this, we're, we're turning to uh, emphasize more of this kind of, you know, EQ, heartfulness, self-awareness type programming in the workspace is because, uh, you know, that is actually much closer to my heart and my own personal evolution. Uh, and so it, it ties the personal side and the business side much closer together uh, in a way that makes motivation and continuity and doing what I'm doing much closer to something very personal and, uh, you know, enjoyable and immediately fulfilling than does, you know, doing something that's just to succeed and, and build the business side. So, uh, yeah. Mm. And, and um, are, are you, you predominantly working with lawyers? Is that just because you know lawyers? Is it a specific niching strategy? Is it because you know lawyers? Is it plans to expand? What's the... Yeah, it's a niching strategy. Um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a focused market. It makes it clearer for me to answer the questions of who to talk to and where to go to talk to them, what conferences, what industry associations. Um, and I didn't appreciate, you know, how valuable that is uh, until recently. And so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of, you kind of go and then you come back and realize, hey, you know, you're back to, you should go back to where you started. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so yeah, you know, it's a smaller market. It's, I think going to be, uh, it's more focused and so easier to develop relationships and reputation and so on. Um, so it's a mixture of a niche strategy and, and an awareness of the fact that, first of all, I'm deeply networked there and there's a lot of work to be done there. Yeah. And have you noticed a shift in the attitude in law firms towards the sort of thing that you're talking about? Because, you know, go back 20 years, I suspect most people would have entertained a lot of these conversations. Have you noticed changes in the recent years? Yeah, I think there are changes. I think retention is becoming increasingly an issue, especially during the pandemic. Uh, probably driven by a number of kind of macro trends, one being, you know, just the fact that they were working, working like crazy or throughout COVID uh, for one reason or another, very busy and very profitable. But another being that COVID probably has increased mortality salience and gotten people reflecting on what they're doing with their lives. Um, uh, and probably that millennials and Gen Z in general you know, want more meaning and, and uh, connection in the workplace. And, you know, it's not just the money and the status that so will do it for them. So I suspect there's kind of a shift there too. Um, uh, you know, as people take for granted increasingly that they have their physical and biological and, you know, basic needs, uh, you know, it's no longer enough for them to just have a career, you know, a successful career as a lawyer that pays the bills and, you know, has security and certainty. They actually want more of uh, you know, Maslow's hierarchy, uh, more of the self-actualization on the top. Um, so probably a number of reasons that are causing law firms to reflect deeply on uh, how they go about getting their people more engaged and deepening retention and uh, the like. And then, you know, I would like to push the edge a bit. Um, you know, their law firms have wellness oriented stuff now. And, you know, there's Kind of some mindfulness programming and things like that that have crept in uh but i think there's room to push the edge and expand it a bit more and deepen it a bit more uh i think it's a profound shame that the reaction uh, i get from many people in the industry when i tell them hey you know i used to be 
uh, also work at an elite law firm and, you know, now I'm doing this. Uh, I'll tell, sometimes I'll talk to lawyers at an event that we're doing. And the response is almost invariably, oh, you got out, right? <laughs> yeah. And these are, you know, conscientious, analytical, thoughtful, brilliant minds working at the best law firms doing the most complex legal work. And why is it that that's kind of the norm? Uh, why are people that are so bright working in an industry where everyone feels like they have to get out or they got out is kind of like, you know, a normal reaction. It's like more normal, you know, it, it's more often than not that that's how people are reacting. That mm. just doesn't make any sense. Uh, you know, there's something wrong um, if that's kind of so normal. And so the question is, you know, without being radical, without being, you know, too revolutionary, uh, how do we shift it slightly so mm. that people feel more at home, more recognized, more appreciated, more connected, uh, and have more enjoyment? And for some people, the answer might be, hey, it's a bad fit. I wasn't really thinking. But I suspect that there's some portion of people for whom it's like, hey, we can adjust it so that this actually works better for you. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, it's important that the, the people at the top realize that because they're the ones that can make the change. Now, obviously, over time, people at the bottom will get to the top. <laughs> but yeah. that's, that's where the shift has to happen, isn't it? Uh, Correct. Yeah. I think it has to be taken seriously uh, upstairs. You know, yeah. you can help you know, people on the junior levels become a bit better with dealing with things and being more resilient and self-aware and reflective and so on. And it's good insofar as it plants seeds for the future, um, but it's got to be, you know, leadership. We ran this event, uh, you know, for a large law firm, and most of the people didn't even show up to the firm that day. And you know, twenty people showed up for an event meant for 100, 150 people. Uh, if you are serious about, you know, your culture and it being a good place to be, if you're the leader, you know, the managing partner or other senior people at the firm then you signal that you're going to things like that and you show up and you stay because mm -hmm. if it's really important to you and you want to make an impression and you want to build a, an environment that's uh, you know, somewhat lighter and more playful and just a better place to be, then you take that seriously. And if you're not taking it seriously, it's not going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of your leadership, You've already mentioned you've got your extra level coming in in terms of the uh, EQ side of the of the uh, get some class. You mentioned a second project. Yeah. Give us a little taster on that. Yeah, sure. I have a secondary project, which is, you know, basically directly connected to everything we've been talking to. And that's that I realize many lawyers leave the industry and go on to do all sorts of other interesting things. Uh, but really don't have any kind of community uh, or space or resources. And also, you know, the people that do it always invent their, their way to hop over the gap um, themselves, uh, which is kind of a shame. So, and then, you know, people who realize they're dissatisfied have to kind of figure it out for themselves. So I've just been building community in that space. Um, at this point, I've collected a list of like 160 Harvard lawyers who are no longer practicing law. Uh, one of them, for example, is the CFO at Salesforce, right? So like, that's pretty big. Um, uh, and they're very accomplished, right? People, often they're people that, uh, you know, are, are driven to, you know, innovate or differentiate in interesting ways, which is why they left to begin with. Uh, and uh, we've, you know, there are a number of projects that have grown out of that. We have a podcast now where I interview lawyers who've left the law. Um, you know, people doing really awesome stuff, really cool people. 
Uh, and the goal there is to kind of validate uh, the listeners and say, hey, look, you know, if you enjoy what you're doing, great. You know, if you have your path within the law, great. But, you know, there's plenty of paths available. And here is many, many people and how they did it and what they're doing and learn from them and do your thing. Find your you, um, you know, live your one life. That's really your life. Um, uh, so, you know, that's, that's kind of all part of this, you know, lawyers, uh, previous, you know, former lawyer project, um, uh, and just, you know, some community building around there, I have a group for big law entrepreneurs who've kind of, uh, you know, left lead law firms and are now entrepreneurs, how we can help each other and support each other. And, uh, just generally that space of, uh, elite legal talent and, you know, uh, transitions and, uh, doing other stuff and so on, just something that, you know, I'm kind of playing around and mm, yeah, sounds fabulous. Yeah, that's it, it makes a lot of sense as well. Um, because you say it's a, a common factor, but there's so much skill and resource and knowledge which uh, just needs maybe a bit of extra help to grow. Although, well, the guy from Salesforce is doing all right, so <laughs> yeah, gal, yeah, it's a gal. Um, it's a gal, uh, yeah. So, but people are kind of like, um, People are all over and uh you know it's it's really cool uh to see what people do and where they go uh mm. and then also to kind of you know help them out when i can so mm. there's a person you know in this informal list that i have and who's you know he's he's uh, he has a startup and um uh they're raising seed round and he uh wanted input from you know venture capital people and there's a whole bunch of venture capital people in the list so you know i made I think four introductions for him yesterday uh, and you know hopefully I imagine he'll get great information and hopefully he you know contributes to his success and you know it's kind of fun thing to do and rewarding and so yeah that's kind of one of the reasons I'm uh, building trying to build some community here yeah fabulous and uh, and again with the post pandemic and everything I think community is just one of those things that just gets more and more important as we sort yeah. of as, as technology moves us away from it, we need it even more. So, um, yeah, it's a profound shame that, you know, the presence of pervasive communication tools has actually eroded real social connection. I don't know if you've read Johan Hari's book on, uh, uh, it's called, oh gosh, I can't believe, um, it's called Lost Connection. And it's basically about this, you know, uh, uh, the presence of pervasive, communication and easy messaging, you know, in one form or another has really eroded uh, human attention and the social networks and the social opportunities that we often would have had previously. And I think we're all suffering from a you know, severe degradation of our, uh, you know, deep social connections. And, and, you know, that's problematic. And community, I think, is something that people are really uh you know thirsty for uh, whether they know it or not yeah for sure Daisy, it's been an absolute pleasure um i have one big question to ask you yeah <laughs> everybody gets asked on the uh, on the podcast that's why you're here yeah, don't worry i'm ready for you <laughs> i'm ready for you joseph what makes your bits tingle yeah um you know my sex therapist asked me that question yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i was ready for you andrew uh yeah I, I think you know we've kind of touched on a lot of the answer to that and i suspect you know um uh that you've um you know intuited a lot of it uh i think the living in a world in which 
people uh, engaged with the world a bit more reflectively, uh, with a bit more self-awareness and seriousness, um, as in you know a certain existential seriousness about the nature of the world, acknowledging that kind of uh, you know tragic element of the world and our uh, our own relationship to it, and then building uh, in engaging in the internal work necessary to build. Uh, a, you know, deeper, richer, happier, more joyful life, you know, so elements of that include the ability to have sympathetic joy with other people's, uh, you know, successes, um, uh, cultivating minds and abilities that really uh, enhance our ability to lead these rich lives and the internal skill set and mindsets necessary for that, you know, it's kind of an afterthought in most places and uh, most environments. It's not something that's an integral part of education, for example, even though you would think that developing the capacity to read a, lead a rich, um, internally rich, uh, happy life is kind of like the most important skill, you know, you can develop. Um, uh, and so uh, working on that, uh, expanding that both for myself, so I can lead the richest life I can, and for the you know, the world at large for more and more people to take that project seriously uh, is very important for me. It gets me excited, um, you know, existentially excited, uh, I think in a more profound way. And then the ramifications of that, which I think for the world in general, which are that, uh, you know, we're all too often just accidents of our circumstances or a social situation, uh, our positions on the world, our viewpoints, our perspectives, uh, our political persuasion, is often an accident. We, we have these kind of superficial positions on you know, many major and complicated issues in the world. We are, we're for gun control, we're against gun control, we're for abortion, we're against abortion, we're, you know, we're for Trump, we're against Trump, we hate Trump, we love Trump, we whatever, you know, um, uh, we uh, uh, were, these, so much of our engagement in the world is through this kind of like uh, simple reactionary a lens that just takes its cue from the people around us, as opposed to first cultivating the you know internal deep independence and thoughtfulness, and then taking that out into the world in a way that takes things really really seriously. You know, so you know just to give an example of like uh, climate change, right? So serious issue, important issue, and very very clear you know signals that that's going to be increasingly something that we need to think about, right? Um, but it's people fall into camps. They're you know, they're activists or they're anti, they don't take it seriously, you know, and it's like, uh, can we develop minds that think are not just, we're not just positions, we're actually, we realize there's complexity to things, we bring a certain depth and seriousness to the conversation where we really want to hear other perspectives because they enrich our ability to think through things through, we understand nuance and trade-offs and that things aren't so simple and it's not just so, yeah, we impose rent control and we solve everything, no, there are systems, the world works a certain way, um, and so there's a kind of personal side to the project and general side to the project. The personal side is kind of the internal weightiness and seriousness that we need to develop vis-a-vis -vis our lives, our ability to you know, regulate and be self-aware of our habits and internal reactivity uh, and lead personally rich lives. But then also how that relates to the world in general uh, and, and how we can become just wiser on a social level and take thing, you know, not just be these kind of, you know, groups of groupthink, but take that kind of rich thoughtfulness uh, and deeper character into engaging with the world in a way that creates much more deeper, reflective, 
thoughtful approaches to the major challenges and elements of the tragedy, you know, that we uh, pointed to earlier, which is the nature of human existence and its uncertainty and precariousness and deal with it in a way that's less ad hoc, more thoughtful, more nuanced, more have, and, and engages more seriously with each other um, from a base of, you know, deeper character and deeper and deeper intentionality. Does that make sense? Is that coherent, the kind of parts yeah, of it? I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, if, I will, I'll sum it up in my words, or, or a lot of it is, is that, you know, there, there's a lot of excuse that's given to the way we're wired, the in the natural instincts, the, the animalistic instincts, if you like, and you're talking about the way people behave on social media and the camps and that kind of stuff. And, and for me, a civilization should be where we're not driven by those animalistic instincts, but yeah. get into a space where we can actually work out the right solution for the right thing and exactly. I don't those animalistic solution, uh, instincts should be used as an excuse for violence and 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 all the rest of it you know it's yeah 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 exactly it's the we shouldn't treat the accident of nature as our kind of destiny uh the <laughs> fact that we are we have these animalistic instincts and these group oriented uh uh, you know, impulses and tendencies. But we're not. But we're not ruled by them. That's the thing. We don't have to be ruled by them. And you know, the the serious project here is one that says, you know, let's take character and seriously. And character means the capacity for deep self awareness, for growth, for evolution, for emotional regulation, for learning to you know let go of the I and my perspectives and opinions and on the world and learning to build a mind that can know more, can understand its ignorance and weak points and listen in a deep way and be enriched by other people's uh, perspectives and thought on the world and honor them in a kind of uh, really sincere way um, while not, you know, just kind of like, but also, you know, pushing back and challenging in a thoughtful way, but that is geared towards getting at, you know, real understanding, real resolution, um, rather than the lower order cells that we often live from as an accident of our animalistic impulses. Mm. Beautiful. Joseph, if anyone wants to find out more about you, what you're up to, particularly if they're a lawyer that's looking to engage their team, huh? um, where should they go? Where should they look for you? Yeah, so I'm joseph at getsomeclass.com, J-O-S-E-P-H, get some classes, get some class, uh, like get some class. Uh, <laughs> uh, the website is getsomeclass.com. Uh, and uh, you can connect to me on LinkedIn, Joseph Grissel, uh, the get some class guy. There's one other one, I think. Um, uh, but if you have a hard time finding me, just email me at joseph at getsomeclass.com. Brilliant. And I'll put all that in the show notes, but not everyone yeah. looks at them. So, you know, they give a chance to, to do the thank work. Uh, Joseph, thank you so much. It's been uh, very philosophical. I love that. I love the love the, the the conversations that go deep into those things, but also love what you're doing. The the fact that you're challenging the norm, taking things forward. And uh, bottom line is you're trying to make the world a better place and uh... <laughs> and also make a living, you know, and make a living at the same time. But uh, that's all we can do at some time at some point. Yeah. So um, yeah. thank, thank you so you. much for coming on, Joseph. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. These podcasts are not necessarily here to give you all the answers. I want you to think about what's been said, what's come up and how you might apply that to your own situation. And if you've enjoyed it, then please subscribe to the podcast and of course share it on the social media platforms and so more people get a chance to hear what's going on. Thanks very much for listening. My name's Andrew Miller from Business Enjoyment and I want you to enjoy your business so much it makes your bits tingle. <laughs>